Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. Amarachi Siri, thank you so much for joining the Greener Way. Can you please tell our audience a little bit more about you and your role at Janice Henderson? My role is as a sustainability analyst working on the global sustainable equity strategy, which is one of our flagship strategies um, at Janice Henderson. It's a sustainability strategy that's been around now for well over 30 years uh, and has really worked on the principles of um, trying to do some good, but without doing any harm and making money at the same time. And <laughs> I, I, I think um, the fact that the strategy has been around for so long, that it's been so successful, is a testament to the fact that you can invest in a way where you don't hurt people, you do some good, and you also make some money at the same time. The triple bottom line, as we keep as we keep hearing about in the, the academic press, remind me you, you don't come traditionally from a financial services background, do you, Amarachi? You uh, you started off in in other sectors before you made your way to Janice Henderson. What drew you into financial services, and how did you get here? My story is a bit roundabout, and uh, <laughs> to be honest, the best it, stories, the yeah, best it, stories are roundabout. It, it's it's all over the place, and. In fact, um, current events now kind of also link to my story. So in 2001-ish, that's when I started looking at environmental science. I was still in secondary school. And what prompted me to start looking at this field as a potential career was the Iraq war. Um, One of the things that really uh, struck passionately with me was the fact that uh, I felt that um, the war was the, there was a large component of that war that was being fought over oil, and a part of me just felt, do we need to be fighting these types of wars? It's not the same as when you have a, a real horrible aggressor in place and you're fighting to maintain freedom. Here, you're fighting to impart to maintain an energy source. And that started my journey in terms of environmental science as to why is it that we can't switch away from this thing that seems to be not only encouraging us to fight wars that we don't need to fight, but is actually also really harmful to the planet, is harmful to human health, Uh, I mean, not enough is talked about the fact that we've got really horrible air pollution that is shortening life expectancy across the world and it's compromising our children's futures. So that started my journey into this space and I went and studied a degree in environmental management and when I finished that degree, uh, I'd always wanted to go into financial services, but I finished that degree in 2008. Mm-hmm. And we all know what happened in Not a great year for financial journalists either, frankly. <laughs> my, my boss, Hamish Chamberlain, one of the things he says on a regular basis is that anybody who was working during 2008 was very blessed and was as tough as nails because it was so hard to get any form of employment. And I was very fortunate because even though financial services wasn't hiring, the construction industry was. And I actually got a job in 
uh, in construction research at working for the building research establishment in the UK. Now, for those people who are not familiar with their work, they have been around um, for almost 100 years, well, yeah, over 100 years now, doing research into buildings in terms of their strengths, their resilience, how to construct them better, and what I went in to do, which is how to construct them in a greener and more sustainable way. And I worked on a certification standard called BREAM <laughs> mm-hmm. in in the UK, um, which is actually used across the world to certify sustainable buildings. I started initially working on the research and and maintenance of that um, standard. And then I moved into teaching the standard to people who would then go on to assess buildings in that way and also creating some of the training courses. Through that journey, I, I, I thought, oh, this is this is interesting. This is probably going to be where I stay for the vast majority of my career. So I went and did a master's in interdisciplinary design for the built environment because I thought that's going to be where I stay. I realized that there was a disconnect between the level of knowledge that I had from just researching in-house as opposed to being on site. So I changed my role and I went to work on site for contractors with my hard hat and my high vis. Mm-hmm. And then I had a I I had a moment that kind of knocked me back and kind of knocked me to my senses to an extent. For a long time I something hadn't sat quite right with regards to what I was doing. I was successful in that career I was progressing but I wasn't happy Mm, mm -hmm. and it didn't click until I went back to the University of Cambridge to um, do a short course in sustainability and part of that short course included a lecture on sustainable Mm. finance and when I sat that lecture, I knew that I couldn't remain in the construction industry. So I had the conversation with my then employer and um, we had a, uh, they, they were so brilliant and so incredible. They completely understood and they said, look, just help us in terms of training up your replacement and we'll help you in terms of getting a place elsewhere. And they did. And Luckily, uh, I, I left, no job in hand, but um, with with their blessing. And thankfully, Janice Henderson took a look at my CV and hired me, and the rest is history. Do you feel that the, the fact that you started uh, your career in a different uh, sector and then found your passion in sustainable finance, does that influence the way that you that you conduct your job and the way that you analyze companies or engage with companies um, through this process of sustainable investment? I think that it gives me, and also I've seen it with other analysts, it gives them an edge as well when they've come from industry first before coming into uh, analytical roles like this. I think it's one of the things that fascinates me so much um, as as a journalist when I get into these conversations that the people who tend to come to the sustainability sector do have that broad base of experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feeds into that empirical evidence about diversity of thought, um, sort of creating an unusual um, outcome in terms of risk mitigation and opportunity seeking. And you can really see that in, in this, this part of the financial services sector, I find. One of the things that I, 
I would say is that it's not exclusive just to financial services. I've been very fortunate mm. to come across lots of sustainability professionals across many different sectors. And mm. they also seem to have this broad set of experiences and um, qualifications. But there is, one of the things that I would say is that it's always underpinned by, the best ones are always underpinned by um, a level of academic rigour as well. Typically, the mm. people that I see who are the best at this have gone and studied it at university and have worked in it. And they, they have another uh, discipline that they're, they're employing in addition mm. to um, the sustainability side. And that's certainly the case with me. I'm dual disciplined because I don't just do, I, I haven't just studied sustainability, I've also studied design. And that's mm. impacted a lot of the work that I do in terms of the analysis work that I look at. I wanted to circle back a little bit, um, and it's along this thematic Amarachi, but you mentioned that, you know, one of the early things that drew you into the space was that this idea that, you know, environmental impacts differentiate on communities differently. Um, and I think that that point about environmental justice, um, you know, sort of, and that wider consideration of equity, equality, and diversity, it's something that's come to the fore a lot more strongly over the last couple of years. Um, and it's something that you and I have talked about previously in articles that that um, I've interviewed you for. Um, how is this starting to express itself um, from your perspective in the analysis you do um, and the conversations you're having with with portfolio companies? In terms of justice issues and not just from an environmental justice perspective, but from also a social justice perspective, a lot of people didn't care before and they care a lot more now. And mm. then um, when I'm able to have those conversations with companies, I can say, well, actually, we're coming to you because our customer base cares and so does you, yours. And um, if you if you want, let's work together on solving these issues. It's never a case mm. of um, speaking to a company and going, how dare you? You don't know what you're doing. Or No, that's not helpful. Um, mm. And it's a very good way for people to turn off. It's instead, what we what I try to do is have constructive conversations with companies where I say, look, this is an issue. People mm. have noticed it, but we want to work with you in terms of resolving it and share knowledge and share experience. And eventually, yeah, this hopefully will not be an issue uh, in the future. How's that manifesting itself? I mean, there's long-term um, issues that are sort of, you know, endemic to the capitalist systems, let's be honest. But are there sort of sort of shorter and more medium-term uh, manifestations of this concept um, that you're currently engaging on with, with companies? I, what I found is that um, very few companies go out of their way to intentionally greenwash and um, try and pull the wool over people's eyes. What tends to happen is that people will just put something in their disclosures which they think is correct and it then turns out that there is science or evidence or um, data in the public domain that doesn't support that statement. Mm. Um, so some of our biggest successes and one of the things that we've, we as a uh, as a strategy have been doing for the last three years is to engage with companies on their sustainability reporting, but not from the perspective of um, just have all of this stuff in it, but also mm. from the perspective of saying to them, look, we have noticed some statements 
And <laughs> we think that um, it's not necessary <laughs> to, to, mm. to do this because there's a lot of good stuff already in the report that this kind of detracts from the good stuff. Or, or there are ways of doing or saying what you're saying that would make you more scientifically accurate. So uh, I had a conversation with a company um, last week where they had put equivalency figures in their, um, in, in their sustainability reporting where they had gone, the carbon that we have saved is equivalent to taking so many, many cars, so many, many thousand cars off the road. I always hate those because I. How do you actually know? I mean, cars are at different levels of emissions intensity, different years, different wear and I, it. I'm not a mathematician, but it always seems like such a grandiose statement, and I never include them when I'm when I'm writing articles because it just seems impossible to back up. I, I think you've t you, you've just hit the nail on the head right there. Mm. It's so difficult to actually calculate that in a meaningful way. So. Um, there are, there are ways in which it can be done. <laughs> mm. And there is a gentleman called Mike Berners-Lee, who is really a, a, a very big authority in terms of carbon calculations and equivalencies. And he's written mm. several books on the subject. And he has shown how it can be calculated, but he's also shown where the variances lie. So if you're talking about taking cars off the road, for example, you would have to include the embodied carbon of the car as well as um, any average the average miles that that particular car would have taken over its lifetime. And in addition to that, um, it, you would probably also have to de uh, define what type of car it is because there mm -hmm. are huge variances, as you mentioned earlier, between a small runabout and an SUV. So what is your baseline car? So are there more meaningful, like when you're engaging with companies about green wishing versus green washing, are there more meaningful indicators that you ask them to clarify on? And, you know, are there other examples, you know, in terms of like, you know, diversity statistics, for example, and sort of career progression where there's, you can see what they're trying to say, but it's not meaningful or it's not aligned to long-term positive investment return with that integrates environmental and social considerations? For the reports, the biggest area is actually relating to the products and services that a company uses. Often you get lots of statements to say, oh, we're doing this or we're doing that regarding our products and services. And this product is sustainable because it does all of this. However, how much of that is your actual business? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's that that that's actually been one of the biggest issues that um, we've been engaging with companies on, um, and not because not just because we don't find it meaningful when a company points to just one product and it ends up only being five percent of their business, but w there's now regulation coming uh, to make that really really unhelpful so in the in the eu we've got the eu taxonomy and mm -hmm. we've got the sfdr regulations and they're asking for that level of granularity and if that's not provided then we as a house cannot report and that mm. becomes problematic as well with regards to the diversity point 
one of the things that, uh, as you know, we've discussed in the past is relating to designing products to be inclusive. And when I, when I talk about inclusivity, yeah, I, in the past I've talked about just including women because for me it seems bonkers that you would design a product <laughs> and that product by the nature of how it's been designed has excluded half the world's population. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is that every product should be designed to be gender neutral. It shouldn't mm. be designed so that only one gender really can use that product successfully. Well, particularly given that as particularly as as human bodies, we develop and change through the lifespan. And, you know, what may suit a man at the age of 35 will not suit a, a woman at the age of 70 or a person who, you know, has a different gender expression at the age of, you know, 43. It's... um to be very narrow casted at it uh, would seem to be a, a strategy to eliminate your customer base. I would say yes, if not for the fact that I know that with a lot of these companies, it's just not intentional. A lot mm. of the times um, it's a blind spot from, from that comes from not having the right people in the room when you're mm-hmm. actually trying to create and design those products. How have those conversations gone, Amarachi, when you've, when you've, because we, again, this is something we've talked about through the years in terms of getting people who resemble your customer base on your design teams. Are, are companies starting to get that picture? And, and how do you engage on that topic as either, you know, one individual asset manager or as part of a wider coalition? The conversations for the most part have actually been incredibly positive. Um, there is an automatic assumption when looking at these things that a company will automatically be wanting to only have mm. men on a design team. And that's not the case. Most mm. companies, they want to be able to sell their products to as many people as possible. They don't want to just be creating a product and finding that it sits on the shelves because half the population doesn't want to buy it and actually it's Mm. even worse than half the population because um as we've spoken in the past uh women actually can um do are are controlling most of the buying decisions Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in most western economies Mm -hmm. um the latest stats that i have is 85 percent of oh, crikey, that's gone decisions. up. It's gone up, yeah. That's gone up in a year. <laughs> <laughs> that was from Forbes. Latest mm. that say 85% of buying decisions are controlled by women. Mm-hmm. So if if they're controlling the buying decisions, and it's not for the things that you, you would typically expect, like, for example, clothing uh, and toiletries, but it's also for the things that you wouldn't typically expect, like automobiles. Mm-hmm. So if you're not then designing a product where it's going to actually meet the needs of the person who is making the decision as to whether that product comes into the household, then mm-hmm. that's a missed opportunity. Do you find that the portfolio companies in in uh, that you're managing tend to be more attuned to that um, to that construct and are actually improving on these metrics, Amarachi, or is this slow going? I think it depends. Depend. It's really dependent on the company. There are, and that's partly because the ind- some of the industries, the pipeline, is not there. Um, mm. So I, I I know this having come from the construction sector. 
there aren't many women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in terms of creating that pipeline of people who are coming into that space, you mm-hmm. actually have to start engaging with people from very early on when they're still in school so that they have it on their radar that this is even a career. The, 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 in this bonkers world, we still have this idea that there are pink jobs and blue jobs. And that, doesn't, that seems a very archaic term for mm. our very modern times where, we don't, where gender is not even binary anymore. You know, people, there are people who do not sit in either gender. There are people who um, identify um, with one gender one day, but maybe identify with another gender another day. And for most people, myself included, there are aspects of everybody's personalities where um, there are things that we do that would be considered more masculine, and then there are things mm-hmm. that we do that could be considered more feminine. So this higher idea of just going, oh, this is the feminine and this is the masculine, and it there isn't that gray area does doesn't make sense and it shouldn't be the case when selling products especially products that frankly shouldn't really be gendered at all there, there there's no reason really why a car should be gendered an awful lot of advertising agencies are going to be uh, very disgruntled when they when they hear this episode. <laughs> <laughs> they may be, but it's it's a it's a fact. Like mm. a lot of people um, are in a situation now where there is one car for the entire household, so it means that mm-hmm. you've got multiple genders driving the same vehicle. Why is that vehicle gendered? Mm -hmm. If you design a product with all of these intended uses and just make it inclusive and make it adaptable, then you're more likely to get money and to grow your own business Mm -hmm. for having a product that meets customer needs. And that's all that this is. It's all about meeting customer needs. I think that's a really good moment for us, a moment to end on in terms of meeting customer needs. And it'll be interesting to see how portfolio companies continue to push this one at Amarachi. Amarachi Siri of Janice Henderson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you like today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greenaway podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greenaway podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement And if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. 
For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.